Cornucopia Radio presents Peter William Sutcliffe The jury have found you guilty of 13 charges of murder If I may say so murder of a very cowardly nature for each was a woman it was a murder by getting behind her and beating her on the head with a hammer from behind it is difficult to find the words that are adequate in my judgment to describe the brutality and gravity of these offenses and I say at once I am not going to pause to seek those words I am prepared to let the catalogue of crimes speak for itself he went on to say, I have no doubt that you are a very dangerous man indeed. The sentence for murder is laid down by the law and is immutable. It is a sentence that you be imprisoned for life. I shall recommend to the Home Secretary that the minimum period that should elapse before he orders your release on license shall be 30 years. That is a longer period. An unusually longer period in my judgment, but I believe you are an unusually dangerous man. I express my hope that when I have said life imprisonment, it will precisely mean that. Mr Justice Borham, Number 1 Court, Central Criminal Court, The Old Bailey, London, May the 21st, 1981. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practiced in criminal law. Now they are both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. They are currently looking into the murder in 1973 of Wendy Sewell in Bakewell Cemetery and asking who could have committed the murder following the overturning of the conviction of Stephen Downing in 2002. So in the last episode, we talked about the conviction of Stephen Downing in 1974. But in 2002, his conviction was quashed. So what was the police reaction to the quashing of that conviction? The reaction they had was that they were faced with the uh, problem or dilemma, depending on how you look at it, that uh, the murder took place in 1973. The conviction was quashed in 2002. So some 29 years after the original police inquiry, left them with the question, if it wasn't Stephen Downing, who was it? And how do we reinvestigate and establish what the facts are 29 years later? Quite a big problem at that time for any police force to investigate. Yeah, it's a really difficult investigation for any police force. It's It's quite daunting, in fact, because when you look at the police officers, no doubt that all the police officers that were on the original inquiry would no longer have been serving. And as far as the witnesses are concerned, 
The witnesses could have moved on, they could have married and changed their names, they could have died or just suffering from failing memories. So lots of inherent difficulties in this kind of reinvestigation and that presents big problems. Yes, the the inquiry was helped with Don Hale's book, The Town Without Pity, which was published in 2002 after Stephen Downing's conviction was quashed. I've no doubt that Don Hale's book helped the police with their inquiries. He'd, for many years, researched and collated information, which no doubt Operation Noble took note of, along with any other information that came their way from members of the public or appeals to the public in the media, and combined the two, they reinvestigated the murder from 1973 onwards. They'd clearly spoken to several people that Don Hale had unearthed in his inquiries and concluded that they had no further people to interview at that time. So I assume it was a fairly intensive reinvestigation and no doubt there were press releases and to elicit a public response and also people many years later may feel like they could come forward, may feel that they were more at ease by coming to talk to the police. But yeah, the conclusion was that Operation Noble, as you said, wasn't looking for anybody else and therefore the case was closed. So the question remains, who killed Wendy Sewell? And I suppose the first option would be Stephen Downing. There's certainly people in the locality that believe, that still believe that he was responsible and that's despite having his conviction quashed. The second option is Don Hale believes that the answer lies within the Bakewell area. Wendy's believed to have a number of relationships or friendships with men. Indeed, we know that she had a a child with one of them. And although Don Hale doesn't name any suspect or come to any specific conclusion, the inference is that either by arrangement or by chance, one of those men met with Wendy in the uh, in the cemetery on the 12th of September and for reasons unknown Wendy was attacked. Yes that's right it Don's Hale's conclusions leave quite a wide parameter don't they really into, they do. into uh, who was responsible basically his conclusions were that it because of her relationships and living in the Bakewell area that no doubt that was a area where he thought the offender lay. Yes, I, th- I think he thought it was, it was a close to home attack. So the third option then, it was a random attack. And in considering that option, we take into account the the book that we've both read by Chris Clark and Tim Tate, entitled Yorkshire Ripper: The Secret Murders. What do we know uh, about Chris Clark and Tim Tate? Well, Tim Tate's an investigative journalist and Chris Clark is a retired police intelligence officer. And their book, it was very well researched and considers the possibility that Peter Sutcliffe, who's also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, may have many more victims than those already acknowledged. Yes, and Chris Clark would have the background. When he was a police officer, his role was that of an intelligence officer, which entailed researching and gathering the facts concerning 
crimes throughout the country, really. In particular, he would link crimes outside his own force area because, as we know, criminals travel extensively. They don't obey the uh, police boundaries and council boundaries. They go throughout the country. And therefore, one of his roles would be linking and researching anything that he could find on serious crime to uh, apprehend the offenders. On his retirement, therefore, he would have continued doing that, which is my understanding how his books come to be about, which, again, uses his skills when he was a police officer. So, Jan, we're both well-versed in the, uh, the life and crimes of Peter Sutcliffe, but for the benefit of our listeners... I think we ought to give some kind of brief explanation to uh, to put Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, into context. Yes, Peter Sutcliffe was born in 1946 in West Yorkshire, in the north of England. He left school at 15 years of age and worked in semi-skilled jobs in his earlier life, grave digging, worked in factories, and then later trained as a heavy goods vehicle driver, Between 1975 and 1980, there were a total of 13 murders and seven attempt murders in the West Yorkshire and Manchester areas. There were attacks on lone females, some being prostitutes and some not. During the time of the attacks, those murders and attacks on lone females, the attacks became known as the work of the Yorkshire Ripper. And after... Peter Sutcliffe's arrest in January 1981, he subsequently admitted that he was the Yorkshire Ripper and responsible for those attacks. So why did Peter Sutcliffe evade capture for so long, John? Well, take yourself back to the time of the murders. The technology was nothing like we basically take for granted today. We had no mobile phones, no computers, no CCTV of the standards we have today. When a serious incident occurred, an incident room would have been established And the details at that time, because of the lack of the technology we have, would have been handwritten, filed on cards, folders of paper, which takes a long time and quite clearly is open to them being mixed up and lost. So when you've got a number of incident rooms running all at the same time, as you had in in West Yorkshire at at that time, the potential for cross-referencing was at best limited or at worst non-existent. Yes and also there was no DNA that we have today. Clearly that's made a fantastic difference to the detection of crime because it's unique to the individual but today we rely on DNA as a unique fingerprint of the person who committed the crime. That wasn't available at that time. No so they were really on an on an uphill struggle to deal with such a lot of attacks, so many attacks in a short space of time. Yes, each murder, as we've mentioned, an incident room, probably anything from 50, 100 plus police officers would be involved, all giving what we call actions, which is sort of an instruction to go and make an inquiry, trace somebody or a vehicle. All that information will be fed back. With so many murders taking place in that area, West Yorkshire Police... I mean, one of the reasons was they were just clearly overwhelmed with the amount of work, which resulted in mix-ups and mistakes. And once mistakes were made, they're very difficult to rectify when you're overwhelmed with the work. I joined the police in 1982, and within the next two or three years, I was trained on the new computer system, 
that was known as HOMES. That was the Home Office Large Major Enquiry System. And that system came about as a result of the Ripper Enquiry. As you've already mentioned, John, when there was a an incident, you set up an incident room and any information coming into the incident room was um, paper recorded. So those incident rooms were full of documents and full of information. So if you got two incident rooms running at the same time, it was very difficult to cross-reference those card index because one card index would be in one incident room and the other card index would be in the other incident room. So the home's computer came about so that wherever you were, if you got access to the home's computer system, you could interrogate it and also interrogate a number of investigations that were running simultaneously. And just to mention when the uh, the Ripper Enquirer was in progress, they actually realised that the problem, or one of the problems they had, they were just completely overwhelmed by paperwork. Yeah. Different incident rooms in different locations. This, at one period, amalgamated them into one building and they had to reinforce the floor yeah. because the weight of the paper was, and the people who were operating it, was too much for the building. It was a huge... There was tens and tens and tens of thousands of pieces of paper and cards. No matter how good or bad you were, it wasn't going to work. But there was no alternative at that time. Yeah, so they were really on an uphill struggle and I suppose they were overwhelmed and presumably understaffed to deal with so many serious attacks in such a short space of time. Yes, also, Peter Sutcliffe, no doubt, was following... The progress of the murders, it received a lot of press and television coverage at the time and quite cunningly started to vary his method of attack to frustrate the police really. So although there were similarities in most murders, there were differences. To frustrate the police even further, partway through the enquiry, the police started to receive, well they were addressed to the Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, letters purporting to be from the Yorkshire Ripper and eventually tape recordings were sent where on the tapes he was taunting the police saying that they weren't very good at the jobs and his boys were letting him down and clearly on the tape the voice that was heard was not of a West Yorkshire accent but of a Geordie accent, the northeast of England. I recall this very well because in the late 70s I was a serving officer and when you went on to the CID you had to go on a training course and I went to the one which was at that time in Wakefield, clearly in the West Yorkshire area where all these attacks were taking place. George Oldfield and other officers gave lectures to the students of which I was one where he played the tape and it was clearly Geordie accent and he told us at that time that he believed quite firmly that the person who'd written the letters and sent the tape was the Yorkshire Ripper. As a result of his conclusions and other senior officers involved, from there on after, they decided that they could eliminate any suspects by the mere fact they didn't have a Geordie accent. And sadly, this was a, a drastic mistake because, as we know, the Yorkshire Ripper lived 
in West Yorkshire and had a West Yorkshire accent. So the letters and, and the tape, I think there were three letters and one tape, they were a hoax, and that hoaxer became known as Wearside Jack. Yes, it, it was uh, many years later, and the actual author of the letters and the tape was actually arrested, wasn't it? That's right, his name was John Samuel Humble. Um, he was arrested in 2005 after a, a fragment of one of the envelopes in which one of the letters was, was mailed to West Yorkshire Police and they extracted the DNA and it was identified that the DNA was from John Samuel Humble. He was subsequently arrested and charged with four counts of perverting the course of justice and subsequently he admitted that he had sent the letters and the tape and he was sentenced to eight years in prison. Peter Sutcliffe was arrested on the 2nd of January 1981 in the Sheffield area. He was observed by a sergeant and a young constable to be in a vehicle late at night in a, a known prostitute area. The sergeant was schooling the young copper in the ways of policing and they just happened to pass by this vehicle, it was suspicious, and as a result of checks on it, decided that the vehicle possibly was stolen, which resulted in Peter Sutcliffe being arrested and detained at that time. And subsequently, the inquiry developed and he was found out to be the Yorkshire Ripper, which resulted in his appearance at court. So what actually happened to uh, Peter Sutcliffe in 1981? Well, he was sent for trial. He pleaded not guilty to 13 murders and seven attempt murders and that was on the grounds of diminished responsibility and in layman's terms that means that he was suffering from an abnormality of mental functioning in other words he didn't really know what he was doing uh, the jury weren't convinced by that defense to these heinous crimes and they found him guilty. He was subsequently sentenced to 20 life sentences. That was made into a whole life order back in 2010. And that basically means life means life. And he remains in prison today. So in this episode, we're only really looking at Peter Sutcliffe in relation to the Wendy Sewell murder. But just on that broad brush of his offences, I think there are other episodes which we could do in relation to Peter Sutcliffe uh, and the his life and crimes. Yes, I think the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry with Sutcliffe is, is massive. I mean, five years, 13 murders, seven attempt murders. And as we uh, have learnt, there's probably many more crimes that he hasn't been convicted of. I think we, in the future we ought to have a look at this and uh, compiling an investigation of our own, do you think? I think it's certainly, uh, it's certainly worthy of some in-depth uh, review. But for this purpose of our uh, podcast today, we're going to look at the suspected connection of the Yorkshire Ripper with Wendy Sewell, aren't we? We are. And to that end, who do we need to talk to? I think, I don't know Chris Clark and uh, Tim Tate, 
I'll make some inquiries and see if we can uh, have a talk to them and if they will help us with our uh, investigations into the Wendy Sewell murder and see where we go. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Before we begin, just tell us a bit about your yourself and your background. Yes, I'm, I'm Chris Clark, a retired Norfolk uh, Police Intelligence Officer. Uh, I served Norfolk Constabulary between March 1966 and August 1994. So do you think that Peter Sutcliffe is responsible for more than the 13 murders and seven attempt murders for which he was convicted? Uh, yes, I, I believe that Peter Sutcliffe is responsible for many more murders and attacks. Uh, Colin Sampson, the assistant chief constable of the day, after Sutcliffe's arrest, said a number of attacks on women since 1966 in West Yorkshire remain undetected. Sutcliffe has now been interviewed about these and other cases which occurred elsewhere in the country, but has denied responsibility. So is Wendy Sewell one of that number? Yes, that, that's uh, correct. That's my observation. So Chris, where did he work? What kind of jobs did he have? What was he engaged in? Um, in 1964, he worked in uh, Bingley Cemetery as a grave digger. He was also employed at times as a mortician assistant in, in the Chapel of Rest in the cemetery. Oh, so what? Uh, What's Peter Sutcliffe's connection to Bakewell and that area of North Derbyshire? Uh, around the time of uh, Wendy's murder, Sutcliffe had originally worked for Baird's Television and they asked him to go on the road as a salesman. So he left in April 1973 and immediately began a job doing permanent night shift at the Britannia Works of Anderton International as a furnace man. Also during 1973, Peter Sutcliffe's sister Maureen married Peter Sutcliffe's friend Robin Holland from Keithley, who was a sapper in the Royal Engineers, and they moved to um, Duxford in Cambridgeshire in married quarters. And Maureen had a, a young daughter who Peter Sutcliffe doted on, and he visited them any occasion he could. So he would travel from Bingley either down the M1 and then cross over the A1 to see them, or down to the M1 and, and then cross-country. Um, so during the time we're talking about September 1973, he was a regular visitor to the family and travelled near enough 200 miles from, uh, from home to, to their address. And Bakewell is actually situated about 19 miles off the M1 at Heath Roundabout. There's also information that Peter Sutcliffe visited the Grand Pavilion in Matlock Bath for country and western and rock concerts. And uh, that's situated just 10 miles south of Bakewell. So moving on, Chris, what makes you think that Peter Sutcliffe was responsible for the attack on Wendy? Uh, around 12 noon on Wednesday the 12th of September 1973, Wendy left her office in Bakewell um, and scribbled a note and left it with her boss. But just before she left the building, her boss heard her talking to an unknown man in her office who spoke with a, an abrupt, high-pitched voice. 
Now, um, Peter Sutcliffe um, has such um, a voice, and two of his survivors mentioned that. Uh, John Tomey, who was the taxi driver attacked by him in 1967, and another confirmed victim, Tracy Brown, who he admitted attacking in Silsden um, in 1975. They had both remarked about their attacker having an insipid, high-pitched voice. And I understand, Chris, you secured a copy of the pathologist report by Professor Alan Usher. What did you make of it? Uh, Having um, previously seen a pathologist report on a a 1971 uh, murder, I was uh, looking through Alan Usher's report specifically uh, for looking for signs of asphyxiation, which surprisingly I found. It, it was quite clear to me that before Wendy was attacked with the pickaxe handle, she was standing and attacked from behind with a knotted garrote rope, which was looped over her neck, which when tightened and uh, fashioned in a tourniquet uh, tightening, would cause asphyxia and would cause her to stumble through lack of consciousness to her knees, which as evidence from the uh, scenes of crime photograph I've seen where Wendy actually has staining on her trousers at her knees. So it's quite clear she was uh, dressed at the time when she was initially attacked. And then having stumbled to her knees, she was subject to a frenzy attack where she was slashed on the back of her head with the pickaxe handle at least eight times, as well as being kicked. Uh, Wendy was originally attacked on the footpath in the cemetery on the woodside close to the consecrated chapel where the pickaxe handle, bloodstained and splintered, was found along with her bloodstained garments, which are said proved that she was fully dressed before being attacked and then undressed was unconscious. Wendy was actually stripped in the manner of the many later Yorkshire Ripper attacks uh, in a prelude, I believe, to being stabbed with a screwdriver and or knife. Her plimsolls had been removed, her trousers, panties and tights were removed, her blouse and boot-tube part of her bra had been lifted up. These are all classic uh, methods in the later Ripper attacks, just two years later. And I believe that the interference of the clothing was a preparation for attacker to continue uh, slashing at her breasts and abdomen. The Trousers, as I say, were sore at these. There was also blood inside the heels of her plimsolls, as well as the clasp from her bra at the scene. And I believe that that's the point where uh, Stephen Downing returned to the cemetery from his break. And whilst Stephen went to summon help, that was the second time that Wendy's body was attacked. She was dragged by her left arm and leg face down some 25 feet away from her initial tap and hidden in amongst the older grave uh, stones. And it's quite evident in the scrape-shaped bloodstains in the scenes of crime photographs and a manufacturer's label from her bra was found in the grass away from the initial tap. So it's quite clear she was dragged from that prone position and hadn't stumbled there. What else in the pathologist's report confirms your view? Um, well, within um, Alan Usher's report, it's quite clear in page four of his report, 
when he studied uh, Wendy's larynx, he said uh, that there was massive eschimosis in the mucous membrane below the level of the false vocal cords, and in layman's terms means a massive bruise in the area of the Adam's apple, which I believe was caused by this knotted garrote, which went over the Adam's apple. And then he goes on to say, in the cervical neck muscles, some bruising of the deep cervical muscles. And in layman's terms, it's pressure by squeezing on the muscles surrounding the back of the neck. And this would be expected when using a grot, uh, having looped it over the neck, applying a tourniquet twist. So you would have two pressure points, uh, one on the Adam's apple and then on the, one on the back of the neck where the tourniquet was twisted. And that is what Alan Usher found. And uh, then goes on to say that um, in page five, that in her tricky and air passages, they were congested with numerous petechiae. And in layman's terms, that means the air passages were congested with a frothy mucus under pressure. This is a characteristic finding of asphyxiation and results from hemorrhage at the end of the capillaries as blood is pumped through dead cells. And then uh, finally goes on to say that uh, examined uh, sections of the lung showed the same congestion in places and it showed that the air passages were full of mucus under pressure. So he, he realised at that time that in addition to the other injuries that Wendy had been asphyxiated he put it in his report and then never made any further reference to it and nor was this presented in evidence at Stephen's uh, subsequent trial or his 1974 appeal or the uh, subsequent uh, CCRC uh, appeal. So just to clarify Chris, what you're saying is that the pathologist made comment on the injuries but there was no conclusion as to what caused them. Exactly, yeah. They, it, it was just left, like, um, uh, not referred to, like it wasn't relevant to, to Wendy's attack. So it was never mentioned at any stage uh, thereafter, uh, and even in Operation Noble, which is the full reinvestigation of the case, and whoever reinvestigated the, uh, the case under Operation Noble should have, and would have read the full pathologist report that I read and seen the inference within it. Am I right in saying when Stephen initially found Wendy, she was lying by the grave of Anthony Naylor, and when he returned with help, she'd been moved in a way you describe, so she was now nearer to the grave of Sarah Bradbury? Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, you, you go by the, uh, the scenes of crime photographs, uh, and there is a trail from the initial attack scene on the footpath across the grass and across um, one of the older grave surrounds to the position that you've just mentioned. In the meantime, I believe the perpetrator left the area via the Catcliffe Wood. There is a, uh, a footpath quite close to the initial attack scene. So, Chris, what you're saying is that Peter Sutcliffe is responsible by the nature of the attack the type of injuries and the removal of the clothing. Yes, if you um, look at Peter Sutcliffe's attacks, uh, many of them, 
each element is identical to his attack. The only thing different in, in Wendy's case is that a pickaxe handle was used instead of a ball peen or warning hammer, which um, the latter he used on a couple of occasions. And um, additionally to the evidence I found of the garroting, Sutcliffe had used a knotted length of rope on his last two victims in 1980, as well as a hammer, and uh, he also kicked and stamped some of his victims. Uh, and it's also evident to me that a grot had been used in a number of unsolved murders committed first of all in 1970 and then later in 1974, which uh, there is strong suspicion that he had committed. Chris, how do you know Stephen Downing? I think it was 2013. I, um, I bought a copy of John Hale's book and having read it, I actually saw the Yorkshire Ripper in, in that case. And the only problem was I, I had the method and the motive, but I didn't have the, the opportunity. And it wasn't until later in the year I was able to establish that Sutcliffe travelled through the Midlands, as I'd mentioned earlier, down to Cambridgeshire and, and to London. So it was at that point I decided to, to try and make uh, contact with, uh, with, with Stephen. I uh, initially made contact with, um, with, with Nita, his, his mum, and, and Chrissy, his sister, uh, because at the time Stephen was very guarded uh, as to what people's motives were. And once he realised um, where my intentions were, he fully uh, trusted me and uh, gave me whatever information he had, which was a copy of the uh, pathologist's report. Chris, there's been two reports into Peter Sutcliffe's offending, the Byford report and the Samson report. What do you make of those two reports? It's quite clear that uh, both gentlemen realised uh, from the outset, that Peter Sutcliffe wasn't the Yorkshire Ripper, he was the United Kingdom Ripper, and that they realised there were many more offences that he'd committed from 1969 um, till the start of the Ripper series in 1975. And uh, Keith Helliwell, who was the detective superintendent in 1982, was appointed by Colin Sampson to investigate what other attacks and murders Sutcliffe had committed, both in West Yorkshire and throughout the United Kingdom. So you believe it was wrong to call him the Yorkshire Ripper? Yes, it, it made it parochial so that um, people outside of West Yorkshire and the two in Manchester, women were going about um, at night time not fearing that uh, this man was going to be behind them and attack them whilst they were unaccompanied. Uh, so this was why he was able from 1970 to commit many more offences th throughout the country, including the Midlands and, and London. Well, we're coming to the end of our time chatting together and I'd like to say a thank you uh, on behalf of both of us for you helping us out today. In conclusion, could I say that you believe that Peter Sutcliffe's offending is not reflected in the convictions for which he remains in prison. And I think that's the conclusion you come to in your book, 
the Yorkshire Ripper, the secret murders? Yes, totally. Um, like I said, I, I've identified many more attacks and many more murders. So you genuinely believe that Peter Sutcliffe's offending is far more widespread? Uh, most definitely. Like I said, throughout the United Kingdom, I, I can place him in Scotland, uh, the Midlands, the West Country and London and the home counties. So you are of the opinion that Peter Sutcliffe murdered Wendy Sewell? There is every element of uh, Peter Sutcliffe's offending within Wendy's case. So right, right down in, in every detail, apart from the pickaxe handle uh, supplemented before a hammer. It was really interesting speaking to Chris Clark. He comes to certain conclusions concerning his views on Peter Sutcliffe and Wendy Sewell, doesn't he? He does. So let's consider what he's told us and let's think about those issues. Can we put Peter Sutcliffe in Bakewell on the 12th of September? Let's consider that first. As far as I'm aware, we can't. We can't definitely say that he was in Bakewell at that time. But what we do know is that he travelled extensively and he was certainly believed to be a visitor to the pavilion in Matlock Bath, which is a, a nearby town. So not a stranger to the area. That's right. We, we've nothing specifically that we can find that said that on that date of Wendy's attack and subsequent murder, Peter Sutcliffe was in Bakewell, can we? No, we can't. Um, so let's consider some of the other issues. In the early to mid-60s, he was a gravedigger in the West Yorkshire area and also worked as a, a, a mortician's assistant. And reading several books on him, he, he clearly has a macabre interest in graveyards and, and dead people, which is commented on by you know numerous people I've read. So, again, we've got that he visited or the murder took place in a graveyard. Yeah, the next thing is, is Peter Sutcliffe known to attack lone females? Well, the reign of terror that the Yorkshire Ripper caused between 1975 and 1980, all the attacks were on females, many of them lone females, either working as prostitutes or just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when he saw them and stalked them. Some were uh, young people, professional people. They weren't all prostitutes, but they were all lone females at the point of attack, similar to Wendy Sewell, who was, as far as we're aware, was alone in the graveyard on the day in question. Yeah, that's right. And... Does the method of attack on his known victims bear any resemblance to the way in which Wendy was attacked? The attacks on all the Yorkshire Ripper victims primarily were attacks with a hammer, a ball-pane hammer or a similar hammer, which rendered the victim unconscious or even caused the death on some occasions. Thereafter, he attacked them further by removing clothing, exposing the body and stabbing them. He kicked them and on occasions he's used a ligature to incapacitate them at first. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that that documented. There's a there's a known incident going back to uh, to the 1960s. He was out one night with his friend Trevor Birdsell in a car. Peter Sutcliffe got out of the car, followed a lone female. I think she was believed to be a prostitute, and he attacked her from behind. And his weapon of choice on that occasion was a rock in a sock and he then returned to Trevor Burstall who was waiting in the car and he told Trevor what he'd done and the second thing of interest is in the 60s again he was convicted of going equipped to steal because he was arrested in possession of a hammer. Yes as well as the method of attack which again is similar to Wendy Sewell's although the Yorkshire Ripper didn't use a pickaxe handle, as we've mentioned, it was normally a hammer. One of the other characteristics was after the initial attack, he disturbed the clothing. And as Chris Clark says, this is remarkably similar in Wendy Sewell's case to the Yorkshire Ripper, the way he stripped the body, pulled the bra up and exposed the breasts. And this was a prelude to him continuing the attack by stabbing them or slashing them with a knife. We can only surmise that before committing that sort of attack, he was disturbed if it was him in the graveyard on that day because, as far as we're aware, there was no cut and slash wounds to Wendy's body, was there? No, I think you're right in saying that that he was disturbed and is the person who disturbed him, was that Stephen Downing? But when Stephen went for help, then Wendy Sewell was revisited by her attacker and dragged to, if you believe what Chris Clark's conclusion is that she was then dragged to elsewhere in the uh, in the graveyard. So also taking into consideration what Chris Clark said about Wendy's attack and that he believes that she was um, attacked from behind but had a ligature put around her throat initially which would then bring her to her knees. It's interesting that in 1981 when Peter Sutcliffe was arrested he had a length of rope with him and that had two knots in it and potentially a ligature for um, for use on his future victims yes the interesting comparison that chris clark makes that he believes that some kind of strangulation took place on wendy as is described in the damage to her throat although of course the main thrust of the pathology report is that she was struck viciously with a with the pickaxe handle. But the Yorkshire Ripper in 81 was found to have a piece of rope with two knots in it, which was clearly a ligature. And also, two of the offences of murder that he was convicted of, the victim had been strangled with what the pathologist describes as a, a ligature. That's right, that was the um, two of the four murders that took place in... Uh... In 1980. And that was just before he was arrested, of course, in the uh, beginning of 81. After Peter Sutcliffe was convicted of 13 murders and seven attempt murders and was sentenced to life imprisonment, two reports were published. Chris mentioned them in the interview he's given, the Byford report and the Sampson report. Sampson was subsequently Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police and Lawrence Byford was, as we mentioned, Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary. Both reports conclude that Peter Sutcliffe was far more 
involved in attacks and murders prior to what we know as the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. Yes, yeah, so, um, Sir Lawrence Byford says in his report that between 1969 and the start of the known Ripper crimes in 1975, there is a curious and unexplained lull in Sutcliffe's activities. He says there is the possibility he carried out other attacks on prostitutes and unaccompanied women during that period. So that's a fairly startling conclusion to come to, that uh, Sir Lawrence Byford accepts that his offending was far more widespread. Yes, the inquiries that have gone on over the years since these two reports clearly have concluded that, as Chris has mentioned, that the offending went on long before the 75 to 80 period, which encompasses the time when the attack on Wendy Sill took place. That's absolutely right, yeah. Keith Hallowell, who was a detective superintendent in West Yorkshire, and later he was chief constable of West Yorkshire, he was tasked through the 1980s and the early 90s of going to uh, visit Peter Sutcliffe. And the point of going for those visits was to ask him about further potential attacks for which he may be responsible. During those meetings with Keith Hallowell, Peter Sutcliffe eventually admitted two more offences, the first one being Tracy Brown in 1975 and the second one was Anne Rooney in 1979. Both of those victims uh, survived. No charges were ever brought, but soon after Peter Sutcliffe refused to see Keith Hallowell anymore and those visits had to stop. You just mentioned, Sally, that Keith Halliwell actually obtained two admissions from Peter Sutcliffe about further offences that he hadn't been convicted with. That in itself isn't unusual that no further action was taken and he hasn't actually appeared charged with those offences before a court, has he? No, that's right. He was serving 20 concurrent life sentences already and no additional charges were laid in relation to the Tracy Brown and Rooney incidents. In 2010, he was given a whole life order. That basically means life is life. And so he, he's going to remain in prison uh, for the rest of his, his natural. So the decision was made not to put any further charges to him. What do we think that the reasoning is behind the fact that he wasn't charged, although, as we've just said, it's not unusual. But what would be the reasoning, do you think? I think in those kind of cases where it's apparent that the defendant is going to spend the rest of his time in prison, the reason that those charges aren't laid um, and additional convictions attracted is... I suppose may very well come down to one of cost. It's quite expensive to take a person to court and if he pleaded not guilty, that would lead to a trial. So I can see from that point of view why you wouldn't put those extra charges. But in doing that, that doesn't really leave any form of justice for those two victims, Tracy Brown and, and Anne Rooney, because although... Peter Sutcliffe has admitted that he was responsible for their attacks. There is no 
conviction that would uphold that. Yes, and in reality, Peter Sutcliffe will never come out of prison. So I suppose the uh, the reasoning is that we can't prevent him from attacking anybody further because he isn't going to be released. So, as you say, money and cost does come into it and the fact that it was years after the event, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's also, you know, what do you achieve? But I suppose mm. the answer to that is you achieve justice for the uh, for the victims. Chris Clark has compiled a list in his book of attacks that he suspects Peter Sutcliffe is responsible for. Keith Helliwell also compiled a list which is very similar to Chris's, although this hasn't been made fully available to the public. Would you think Wendy Sewell would have appeared on that list? She wouldn't have appeared on that list because at the time that Keith Helliwell was compiling his list, that was in the early 90s and Stephen Downing was still in prison, convicted of Wendy's murder. Therefore, it wouldn't have appeared as an undetected murder. The ones that Keith Helliwell were looking at were attacks on lone females where no one's been arrested and or convicted of that attack. So, no, it wouldn't have appeared on that list. Right, John, so here we are back in Bakewell Graveyard. Uh, that's where we spoke to uh, Stephen. And the first comment I've got to make is, it's much colder than it was uh, last time we were here. Yes, we're in winter, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So what are your final thoughts about the Wendy Sewell case? I find it a very uh, bizarre case when you look at all the facts. The attack in this graveyard, which is open to the public like it is today, it's overlooked by houses, the upper windows look out to where we're stood now and in fact there's one or two people in the graveyard wandering around, open to the public. It's absolutely bizarre why anybody would attack anybody at this location. And at that time of day? Yes, it was attack of midday. Lots of people could be walking or looking out of their upper windows of the house. You just wouldn't plan an attack at this location. It must have been a spur-of-the-moment attack for reasons we don't fully understand, and a very vicious attack. The uh, pathologist said that Wendy was struck several times with powerful blows to the back of the head, which would have uh, brought her to her knees and onto the ground. And then, if that wasn't long enough, he then, whoever attacked Wendy, spent time removing her clothing, Upper clothing was removed, various other items of her clothing were removed, and there was two locations. The first location was near a gravestone where we're stood, isn't it, Sally? Yeah, this is the gravestone of uh, Anthony Naylor, and that's where Stephen says that he found Wendy when he returned to the uh, graveyard. Yes, and then, according to uh, further reports, when Stephen went for help and returned, she'd actually moved some distance up the uh, graveyard. That's right, yeah. It's about 25 yards, 30 yards away, up to the grave of Sarah Bradbury. Yes. So if you look at it overall, whoever attacked Wendy spent some time here 
in this location, which I do, as I've said, find very bizarre, you'd have thought if it was a, an attack here, you, you'd make a quick attack and, and leave the scene as quickly as possible before anybody saw you. But that doesn't seem to be the case, which defies belief, really, why anybody would do it here. It's a risky attack, isn't it? It's a risky business that's... Well, yes, I mean, why here, we don't know. And why in this public location, again, we don't know. When I stand here and I think about it, I do find it a really sad case, not just for Stephen and his family, but also Wendy Sewell's family and friends. Not only have they lost Wendy, but they've lost her in such a savage and brutal way. Yes, and Chris Clarks firmly believes that uh, the Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, cannot be uh, ruled out of this attack, bearing in mind the method of the attack, the way he used to attack victims, female victims alone, removing the clothing in a very similar manner to this. Yeah, the similarities are striking, aren't they? And Chris genuinely believes that this is the scene of a Ripper attack. It's now many years since Stephen was released and there's been no alternative resolution for the Sewell family and sadly that does happen, not just in this case but, but many others. We've both worked on murder cases that have been difficult to investigate. Yes, the uh, people's perceptions are that the police always catch the person responsible and as we know and we've worked on many murder cases and serious crimes where we don't catch the perpetrator for various reasons and there's a big misconception that people get their ideas from watching the television. It's having an impact on jury trials which has been investigated and researched by a university because when they're sat on the jury and there isn't forensic evidence that connects the perpetrator who's maybe in the dock, they seem to dismiss it having watched the television and detective television programmes where nine times out of ten, they always catch their man or woman. And that's not real life, is it? That isn't real life, and I think those kind of programmes are having some kind of impact on real-life trials and how juries think. So when we're talking about the investigation process, what, what exactly are we talking about? Well, let's look at if Wendy Sewell murder happened today what the police would do. The police would obviously be called by a member of the public or the ambulance service. They'd attend and seal off the scene. The first port of call is obviously the body, the forensic examination by a pathologist at the scene, and the gathering of forensic evidence, which you cannot replace once it's been destroyed. Senior crimes officers would attend and, and take all the samples and photographs, which is the first process that all serious crimes go through, isn't it? Yeah, you need to secure your scene as well first, don't you? I mean, that always annoys me on television when you see that there's a, a body on the floor and then there's everybody and the dog trampling over it and picking things up and putting things down and not wearing gloves and that's not what you actually do at a crime scene. You need to secure it so that there's no potential for any ruining of the scene or cross-contamination. Yes. In the day of Wendy Sewell's murder, of course, as we've mentioned before, the, there was no DNA evidence, was there? No, no DNA, so no uh, cross-transference from a perpetrator to a victim. The next thing you've got to consider is 
your suspect, because once you've got your suspect, they may tell you everything right at, at the start, but they may be uncooperative or misleading or say things just to throw you off the uh, true course of events. Absolutely. I mean, in 30 years of policing, there's not many people tell you the truth straight away, is there? No, and your interview technique is absolutely crucial to elicit the information that you want. It's normally a jigsaw puzzle that you pick all the pieces up and slowly put them together and then at the end it gives you the picture and hopefully you've got the right person who you believe's done it. Yeah, so once your investigation starts to roll it generates such a lot of work, doesn't it? Well, the, we've mentioned the Ripper Enquiry, the Yorkshire Ripper Enquiry, that lasted five years before computerisation and one of the main problems was that there was tens and tens of thousands of pieces of paper and cards which was a mammoth task to collate and keep in order and basically it just crashed, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. But as we stand here, uh, John, we've all got at least one investigation uh, that stays in our mind and, and that we think about. I know that the one that stands out in my mind was a married man, father of two young boys, who was shot in a lay-by by the side of a road in May 1989. The perpetrators of that attack were arrested and, and jailed, and I think still to this day they're in prison. And I think about his wife, and I think about those boys, because obviously now they'll be in their 30s or 40s, and how all these years later they've, they've coped. Now the other one that I think about happened earlier, that was, it was 1984 or 1985, I know it was certainly during the miners' strike, and a guy had gone missing from work. I think they closed down for Christmas, and between leaving work and when he should have arrived home, he'd actually gone missing, and we started a big search for him. One of his work colleagues had killed him, stored his body at home before taking him to a family member's freezer and storing him in, in the freezer. He too was arrested and convicted. And I, and I do think about that family quite a lot. So there are investigations that, that do stay with us and we do think about and talk about. So what about you, John? What case is it? And I think I know the one that you're going to say. Yes, when we discussed doing a crime podcast, we ran through various names, didn't we, of cases and interesting cases that we could investigate and produce a podcast about. And we did mention the Michael Pritchard murder, which was in November 1989 at Kirk Langley in Derbyshire. I was one of the detectives on that case, and in fact was on it for several months. Uh, Michael Pritchard was a delivery driver, delivering parcels to door-to-door -door rural villages in Derbyshire. And at Kirk Langley, he left his car to go and deliver a parcel and left the vehicle with the engine running. While he was absent from the vehicle at somebody's door, he witnessed somebody getting into the vehicle and tried to stop them driving off. In doing so, they drove over him and killed him. Very sadly, that was never detected. And in fact, I still keep in touch with Michael's widow. And I think that's one that we should look at in our next episode. 
Yeah, I think we should. So then, finally, John, on this rather cold and windy day in Bakewell, do you think the Wendy Sewell murder will ever be solved? As we know, and you know, and as well as uh, myself, in respect of undetected murders, they are never forgotten. They're always re-examined. There's departments now that specialise in reinvestigating murders. Every new piece of information is analysed, and if there is a prospect of detecting it, it always will be. However, in Wendy Sewell's case, we're going back all these years. And it has been reinvestigated during those years, hasn't it? Operation yes. Noble. Absolutely. Over the years since Stephen was released, Operation Noble re-examined it, spoke to witnesses, looked at the forensic evidence, did the best they could, and that's, we're standing here today. Wendy Sewell's murder is not detected. But we'll never stop looking. Everybody wants closure. In many ways, that is what a cemetery offers. A full stop to a person's journey. A message on a tombstone and a simple understanding of someone's life and how they died. But there are gravestones in every cemetery around the world that can never offer a full stop. They can only ever offer a question mark. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally Midgley. The narrator was Stephen Mawson. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about the Wendy Sewell murder by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you will also be able to send us messages discover subscription links for all podcast platforms and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoyed this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you. <laughs>